Happy New Year! My name's Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at King's Church in Portsmouth. And I'm so delighted that you are here and joining us for the message from Sunday. We started a brand new teaching series, which we've titled Resilient Faith. And we're taking a journey over the next eight weeks, looking at the lives of Old Testament characters and how they stood firm in the faith. We're living in challenging days, and it's our joy to help equip you in your discipleship of Jesus. So with all that said, let's jump into the teaching from Sunday. Genesis 6, verse 9 to 22. It says, These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God, and Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and outside. This is how you are to make it. The ark will be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. You are to make a roof, finishing the sides of the ark within 18 inches of the roof. You are to put a door in the side of the ark. Make it with lower, middle, and upper decks. Understand that I am bringing a flood, flood waters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife and your sons' wives. You are also to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of everything, from the birds according to their kinds, from the livestock according to their kinds, and from the animals that crawl on the ground according to their kinds, will come to you so that you can keep them alive. Take with you every kind of food that is eaten. Gather it as as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded him. Then Hebrews chapter 11 Verses 1 to 3 and verse 7. Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by it our ancestors won God's approval. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. Verse 7. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Amen. Amen. Thank you. On the night of January 30th, 1956, a date many of you may or may not remember, Martin Luther King Jr.'s home was bombed whilst his wife Coretta, their seven-week-old daughter Yolanda, and a neighbor were inside. At that time, Martin Luther King Jr. was standing up for the injustice that he and so many others saw around him in in the acts of racism and civil rights. And into his home came violence and destruction. Or we think of someone like Corey Ten Boom, 
who in the midst of the darkness of World War II, she and her family made the decision to harbour Jews, risking their very lives for the sake of those around them. Their efforts were eventually discovered, leading to their arrest on February 28, 1944. Corrie, along with her sister Betsy, faced the atrocities of Ravensbrück concentration camp. And amid those dehumanizing conditions, Betsy's unwavering faith shone brightly. She encouraged prayer amongst her fellow captives, even in the direst of circumstances, pointing one another to the hope that was found in Jesus. Betsy's life ended in that harrowing place, but her sister Corrie was miraculously released. Two stories, two hurting scenarios, but two characters who showed a resilience of faith in the midst of the darkness. The Apostle Paul, in his final exhortation to the church in Corinth, said this, be alert, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. Stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. Let me just pray those words over us this morning. So Father, as we open up your word, as we journey through this piece of scripture, and as we come to understand what it means to walk faithfully and walk humbly before you, our God, that we would learn what it means to stand firm, to be strong in the faith, that you would help us by the power of your spirit to do that. So we invite your spirit to come now. Over every single one of us in this room, we say, come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. This morning, I'm starting a new collection of talks that we're going to go on over the next number of weeks. Uh, It's a a collection that we've titled Resilient Faith. And it's my job this morning to help to set a framework for where we're going to go over the next number of weeks. And to help us do that, I'm going to go through three areas. Number one, crisis. Number two, resiliency. And number three, promise. So firstly, crisis. Over the last number of years, and I mean this is true for all of society through every generation, the world has changed and shifted. There are many, many things that have happened over the last number of years that have had an impact on our faith, on our personal walk with Jesus, and is having an impact on the church. There's one writer, one theologian called Gerald Sitzer who says this, he's a professor of theology, he says this, we live in a modern post-Christendom world in which we face the problem of trying to reclaim and restore a faith that is plagued by, catch these words, by lukewarmness, by division, by worldliness, by nationalism, and by ignorance. And the church is in a crisis moment. Many would say the church is facing a crisis moment. It's a moment of great pressure and of great change. And in our own lives, we feel this change as well. We see it around us in the world. We feel it in the world. For you, this might be the loss of a loved one. It's a crisis moment, a moment of pressure, a moment of change. It could be a change to your job security. It could be a change to your financial security. Pressures on your finances. could be pressures and crisis moments in relationships that you've got with others. And you feel that pinch. There are many things that are going on in the world around us which are changing the normal rhythms that we've come to know and expect. It's a pressured moment. It's a crisis moment. But here's a line that I want us to think about for this morning. That a crisis 
reveals to us what is most important. That when you go through a crisis moment, it reveals to you the very things that you hold most dear. When you go through a moment of change, it reveals to you things about who you are, and it goes, oh, that's why I care about that. When change comes, you go, oh, that's why I care about that. That's why my mind goes towards those things. That's why I weep tears over that situation, because I care about it. A crisis has an ability to reveal to you what is most important. I wonder, as you look back over the last number of years, we've all gone through many things that have been a crisis. Think back to COVID, dare you will. I wonder in that moment when we went through that change and we went into lockdown, it revealed to you the things that were most important. I can't see family in the way that I used to. The crisis revealed to you things that were important. I can't do the normal things that I want. Crisis revealed to you the things that were most important to you. And out of the back of that, some of your rhythms of life changed because you realized the things that I thought were important are no longer important anymore. A crisis revealed what is most important. We're now in a cost of living crisis. And I don't know about you, but you have to budget. And you budget based on your priorities and based on what you can afford, but also what is most important to you. See, a crisis reveals what is important. Multiple wars happening on many fronts. We're in a position of political uncertainty. On a more personal level, you could think about what is going on in your life as you enter into 2024. For me personally, you know, we're now a couple of years into living in Portsmouth. My kids are growing older. There are different things. Life changes, things move on. Maybe you are looking at changing jobs. You build new relationships. These are moments of pressure and change. For some of you in, in this room over the last year, some of you have got married. Some of you have had children for the first time. And it's a crisis in the sense that life has changed and you're trying to work out what does that look like in a new moment, in a new reality. Not that children are a crisis. Maybe you're a student and you're still finding your feet in a new city and you're trying to work out what are the things that are most important for me. I moved away from the family home and for the first time I'm trying to work this thing out. And in a moment of crisis, of pressure, of change and upheaval, it reveals to us the very things that are most important to us. Last year as a church, we began to go on a journey uh, and we went through a journey in our preaching of be with Jesus, become like Jesus and do what Jesus did. I hope you remember and we, we set out this new vision of a church that would prioritize the presence of God in our lives. That we would be transformed daily into the likeness of Jesus. And that would be the, we would be the types of people who would live out the mission and mandate of God to be filled by his spirit. To step out into the city. To step out into our worlds. To make a difference. To see the kingdom of God come to bear. And as we enter into this year, none of that changes. That's still who we feel that God is calling us to be. We want to spend time being with Jesus. We want to create healthy habits and rhythms which will shape and mold us to become more like him. And we want to do all that we can to live out God's mission here in this city. But when pressure comes, when crisis comes, when moments of, 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 of change happens in our life, we can begin to shift our priorities. We can either choose to shrink back or we can press in. We could shrink back and step away from following Jesus or we can push in and say, I'm going to trust you. That in a moment of crisis, we can go, I'm going, to, I'm going to move into the things that God is calling me to do or I can maybe go, God's absent. Where is God in the midst of all of this? And so rather than prioritizing the presence of God, we begin to prioritize other things with our time. We don't turn up to church on a Sunday. I'm just too tired. There's too many pressures. 
I've got too many things to do. Students, I've got too many deadlines. I'm not going to go to church. We begin to prioritize other things. Rather than being transformed into the likeness of Jesus, we begin to pick up other books that tell us to live a different way. We begin to listen to different narratives that tell us, if you do this, then you'll be a better person. Rather than picking up the word of God as the one that is going to transform you and ask Jesus, who do you want me to be? We begin to look elsewhere. Rather than being filled by the Holy Spirit to go out on his mission, we begin to get filled by a different spirit. Maybe a spirit of anxiety, of fear. Maybe a bitter spirit towards others. A vengeful spirit. Maybe it's a lustful spirit. A self-doubting spirit where we go, how could God possibly use me? But if we listen to the voice of God and we ask his spirit to guide us, a different narrative begins to get formed in our mind. And so over the next number of weeks, myself and others are going to look at what does it mean for us that in a time of crisis, in a time of change, in a time of upheaval, how do we stand firm in the words of Paul, stand firm in the faith? How do we be courageous? How do we be strong? Because friends, I want to tell you this now. Now is not a time for us to be complacent. In the words of scripture, now is a time for us to wake up. To wake up. To go, God, what is it that you are calling me to be? Who do you want me to be? I can't just do this and go idly by anymore. We need to stand firm in our faith. Mark Sayers, a pastor from Australia, he wrote a deeply challenging book a number of years ago called Disappearing Church. This came out in 2016, many years before the pandemic, many years before the financial crisis. And in the introduction to his book, he said these words, We are seeing a disappearance of the mode of church engagement, characterized by commitment, resilience, and sacrifice among many Western believers. In its place, a new mode of disengaged Christian faith, and church interaction is emerging. This new mode is characterized by sporadic engagement, passivity, commitment phobia, and a consumeristic framework. That's the mode of church that we're beginning to see. That's a challenge to the church. But that's a challenge to each and every one of us. A crisis moment is a moment of formation. Are we formed more into the likeness of Jesus or are we formed away from it? The Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in Corinth said these words. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. And in verse 16 he says, therefore we do not give up. When the crisis comes, we do not give up. When the things of life come against us and we feel the pressure, we do not give up. When life changes and it throws all sorts of things at us, we do not give up, he says. He says, even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For a momentary light affliction is producing for us an an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Come on, that's great. Love that line. Because when we come into a point of pressure and crisis and change, what does it begin to do in us? He says it produces an incomparable eternal weight of glory. Why? He goes on. So we, because we have not focused on what is seen, but what is unseen. What is, this is what Davinia shared earlier. Keep our eyes on Jesus. That when the crisis comes, we keep our eyes on Jesus. For what is seen, he says, is temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. When we face a crisis moment, so often we can fix our eyes on the temporary. But those things will pass. But God is eternal. When a crisis comes, 
it reveals to us what is most important. Paul says to the church, yes, you will face crisis moment. Yes, you will face pressure. Yes, you will be hard-pressed on all sides, but do not give up. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Number one, crisis. Number two, resiliency. In the book of Hebrews, it says this, starting in uh, chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance. Other translations use the word perseverance, and other translations use the word resilience. Let us run with an endurance. Let's not give up. Let's keep going. The race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of, of our faith, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despised in the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This, friends, is not a passive instruction. This is a call to action. It's about recognizing what are our sinful habits and we lay them aside. We repent. It's about us being committed to those who are around us, actively supporting and encouraging one another. It's about keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. It's not passive and definitely it's not non-committal. We have to commit to it. Again, going back to what Mark Sayers says, we're seeing a mode of church which is characterized by sporadic engagement, passivity, commitment phobia, and a consumeristic framework. What does it do for me? But what Paul encourages us to do, and then what the writer of Hebrews encourages us to do, is to not give up. It's to keep going. Gordon MacDonald, in his book titled Resilient Life, says this, Resilience belongs to the person who pursues it relentlessly for him or herself. You see, we can't expect to grow in resilience if we don't do the work. Our working definition of resilient faith, and I want to unpack this for us now, is this. Resilient faith is a posture of our heart, our mind, and our soul to remain steadfast in following Jesus while living in a culture in opposition to that pursuit. Now let me unpack this for us to help us understand what this is saying. I'm going to work backwards from this statement, starting at the end. Living in a culture in opposition to that pursuit. As a, as a people of culture, we know that around us are so many things that vie for our attention. Whether that's an advert you see on the screen. I don't know about you, but like every single platform is adding more adverts in. Have you seen this? Like it's unbelievable. Like YouTube used to have five second adverts and now they're one minute. Like it's just like relentless. The world is trying to tell us to buy things, do things, go certain places. Social media feeds now are not with your friends. They are adverts. People paying to try and grasp your attention, to make you do certain things. We are living in a culture that is pursuing other things and not the way of Jesus. And it's very easy for you and I to get distracted away from following Jesus and begin to follow other things, follow other people and follow other ideals. There are endless possibilities out there in the world and not all of them are healthy. Surprise. And what we see is a shift towards this idea, and this has been happening in the church for years, this of a post-Christian culture. And this shift of what has arisen is what is called an, is an ancient heresy, namely that of Gnosticism. Now bear with me for one moment while I nerd out. Over half a century ago, philosopher and contemporary Hebrew prophet Martin Buber, discerning an emerging and destructive trajectory within society, warned that a new religion was being proclaimed. 
Buber observed that this new religion was fundamentally different. It was an alternative thought from biblical faith. And in this new religion could be detected an increasing obsession with the self, with personal development, with preference of spirituality over religion, with therapy over communion with a transcendent God, and it was ultimately the elevation of self above God. And although this religion seemed new, Buber noted that it was a return to the older strain of thought, it was a return of Gnosticism. And although this religion uh, offered so many things, ultimately it lays flawed and empty. Gnosticism at its heart is an alternate gospel, which moves authority from God to the self, in which we as the individual seek our power for our own development and catch this, our own salvation. For the Gnostic train of thought sees that salvation lies within the self that we have the ability to save ourselves. If we do enough, if we work hard enough, that we can save ourselves. And in the midst of all of that, where does God end up? God ends up on the margins. God seems to be irrelevant. God, as one writer puts it, God is a massager of our own personal will. And if God doesn't line up with my own priorities, then God is not worth my time. And so therefore, a train of thought begins to be uh, lived out that for humanity to move towards what we people would call a utopian future, God is moved away from the margins and away from the consciousness of the masses. And if you look at society as a whole, this is what we are seeing. God is seen increasingly morally as irrelevant. Dorothy Sayers, many, many, many years ago, she said this, the Gnostic soul must create and shape itself, becoming the author of its own identity. The Gnostic self then proclaims the seat of all authority. It becomes the main actor in its own personal cosmic drama. And all of it becomes about me. Me, my own self-fulfillment, my own desires. And so as we seek to follow Jesus in the midst of a culture with that mindset... If we aren't careful, if we aren't keeping guard, if we aren't keeping watch, we get dragged in subtle ways into the areas of individual freedom, of my own self-expression, my own personal authenticity, and anything that challenges that is deemed as wrong. And this can grow within us a suspicion of the very institution that seeks to offer an alternative way of living, namely the church. And the church begins to be seen as the problem We're seeing this in society, right? We're seeing that the church is so often labelled as an issue. And when the crisis out in the world gets dragged into a crisis of faith, we can then seek to begin to look to shape the world around us, to shape the very scriptures around our own ideals. We can redefine church around what we deem to be best. We can remodel what it means to follow Jesus around our own set of ideals and our own perspectives and ideals. And can you feel the tension in that? That there's a tension towards who we're following. And it's not Jesus, it begins to be, I follow me. And perhaps you're aware of that even in your own heart and mind. And at its heart, this is a Gnostic heresy which is being perpetuated through the rise of post-Christian culture. So that's the last part of the definition. Let's go to the first part of the definition, which says resilient faith is a posture of our heart, our mind, and our soul to remain steadfast in following Jesus. The Collins Dictionary of Resilience says this. 
it says that something that is resilient is strong and is not easily damaged by being hit, stretched or squeezed. People and things that are resilient are able to recover easily and quickly from unpleasant and damaging events. So when crisis comes, we're able to bounce back. We're able to stay strong. And then the posture of our heart, our mind and our soul comes directly from Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, which says this, Listen, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the beautiful thing about this verse is that the Israelites would have said this to one another every morning and every night. They'd have recited it as a community to remind one another that we all have a propensity to forget that God is one, that God is Lord, that he is sovereign. And so they reminded each other, listen, hear up, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. They'd have said it to one another, to remind one another. But the next verse on from this says, These words that I'm giving you today are to be on your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road. When you lie down, when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. There's lots within that, but all I want us to see in that is that it was a communal event. That they did this to remind one another, to point one another to the fact that God is love. That God is with them. And it's as parents towards children, grandparents towards grandkids, you know, and a church family like this, we love one another and we point one another to this truth. We encourage one another in following Jesus. We strengthen one another in the midst of a culture which is tempting and persuading us to live differently. Where there's a cultural narrative which attempts to draw us into an achievement culture or accruing more wealth or more status or more popularity. Those things are inconsistent with the pursuit of following after Jesus. And so a resilient faith is saying that in the midst of a crisis, in the midst of the challenges of life, in the changes that come, we will point one another to follow Jesus with everything that we've got. Crisis, resiliency, and finally promise. In the Old Testament we had read earlier by Abbey, we encountered this story of a man named Noah. And I'm not going to go into much depth on this at all this morning. But there's three things that we see within this text. Number one, the world was full of sin. We can call that a crisis. Noah was obedient to God, and we can call that he was resilient. And God fulfilled his promises. So we can call that promise. Those are the three words we were going to go through this morning. Crisis, resiliency, promise. The world was full of sin. In the beginning, Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 6, verse 5 says it this way, when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth, and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I had made them. And then God looked out on the creation and went, hold on a minute, there's someone who is walking faithfully, there's a man called Noah. And so he found favor with the Lord. So the world at that time was full of darkness, full of sin, or as Eugene Peterson paraphrases, and I love his paraphrase of this, he said, God looked out and he saw that human evil was out of control. People thought evil, imagined evil, 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 evil from morning to night. 
That's Peterson's paraphrase of that passage. So into the darkened culture, God calls Noah to do something utterly ridiculous. And he says to him, I want you to build a massive boat. And I want you to gather up all the animals. Now, remember our resilient faith statement. Resilient faith is living in a, is a posture of our heart, a mind and our soul to remain steadfast in following Jesus while living in a culture in opposition to that pursuit. Noah lived in a culture that was living in direct opposition to that pursuit. What did Peterson say? It was a culture filled with evil, evil, evil all the time. That is a not a healthy culture. That is a culture which is not following after the ways of Jesus. But in chapter 6, verse 22, Noah did everything that God had commanded him to do. Noah had a resilient faith. He had a posture of his heart, his mind, his soul to say yes to Jesus. There was something in his countenance that was different that made him stand out in the midst of a culture that was evil, evil, evil all the time. And he stood firm. He remained steadfast to following the commands that God had given him. Can you think for a moment how absurd Noah would have looked? I mean, if you've ever watched Evan Almighty, <laughs> that's a good cultural reference point for this moment, right? <laughs> or the movie Noah, it kind of flopped, but if you imagine that, that picture, that scene, where you've got Noah basically standing up, or Steve, was it Steve Carell who was Noah? Steve Carell's character, like facing up to the people of the day going, you are ridiculous. Like, I mean, it's obviously characterized as a caricature. It's not real. That's not what happened. But it's that moment where, like, you are absurd. This is ridiculous. Noah stood up in the midst of a culture that said, this is what we're going to do. But the culture was saying, evil, 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 all the time, evil. Even with his family, he stood up to his family and said, this is what we're going to do. He was faithful to the listen to the words of God despite living in a culture which was in opposition to the pursuit of following after God. So then we land at a point of promise and we're going to land here. In Genesis 8.21 we read that God says to Noah, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings. Even though the inclination of the, of the human heart is evil from youth onwards. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night will not cease. And then in Genesis 9, we get this beautiful picture of the rainbow, which is a promise that I will never flood the earth again. You see, with a resilient posture, there is always a promise. When we stand firm in the way of God, there is always a promise. When we say yes to following Jesus with everything that we've got, in the midst of a culture that is doing all that it can to not follow after Jesus, there is always a promise. I will never leave you nor abandon you. I love you, I forgive you. I went to the cross to die for you. I rose again so that you would have life and life to the full. These are promises. With a resilient life, in the midst of a culture that is not following after Jesus, that is evil, evil, evil all the time, God left a promise. And the promise was there as a rainbow for all to see. Resilient faith hinges on what God calls us to do and there is always a promise attached. Isn't that good? Isn't that something worth praising God for? That in the midst of us saying yes to Jesus, there is always a promise attached. That he forgives us, that he loves us. So crisis, resiliency, promises. A crisis moment leads to formation. Having a resilient faith leads to courageous convictions. Living obediently, can be ex can, we can experience the promise of God which leads to faithfulness. 
going to close in worship, so Will, won't you come? But I just want to take us back to our two characters at the beginning as we close. Martin Luther King. He stood on the porch of his damaged home on January 31st, 1956. And he addressed the crowd with a spirit fortified by faith. His house had just been bombed. The very ideals for what he was fighting for were being challenged. It was a moment of crisis. But in that moment of crisis, a resilient faith, a resilient spirit grew. And a message of love and non-violent resistance was not merely a strategic response, but was a reflection of the teachings of Jesus, which was so embodied by him. The spiritual foundation fueled his resilience in the face of adversity and it propelled him on to lead the civil rights movement with grace and determination. Corey Ten Boom, after enduring the horrors of Ravensburg concentration camp, after seeing her sister die in the midst of the pain and the brutality of that camp, she was released in December 1944. And she emerged out of that concentration camp, out of that place of crisis, grew a resilient spirit that said, I want to be an embodiment of the love of God to others. And she created a home and a place for those who had gone through crisis moments, after crisis moments, who had seen the brutality of the concentration camps to find a place of love and reconciliation and hope. She dedicated her life to spreading the transformative power of Christ to others. Crisis moment led to a resilient faith that led to promises being fulfilled and she became the embodiment of love to others, even to the point of standing before those who had held her captive and offering love and forgiveness to them. A powerful, powerful story of hope and love in a wounded world. And so with the words of Paul we end. Be alert, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be Strong. I've got three challenges for us. They're going to come on the screen. You might want to take a picture of these. We'll send these around on the weekly email, which you're all going to get. So number one, this year, I wonder, at the start of this year, identify what crisis moment you are facing and commit to praying for God's strength and his wisdom. And hey, sign up to come to the prayer room and take time with God this week. Number two, Consider areas in your life that you can grow in resilience and write down a few ways in which this year you want to grow in your faith and commit to sharing that list with someone. Maybe that's share it with your life group. So that might be you want to spend more time in the scripture, learning the word of God more, committing to praying, joining a life group might be one of them, growing in resilience. Number three, reflect on some of the promises of God found in scripture and reflect on them Perhaps commit some to memory as a way of reminding yourself of God's love. When a crisis moment comes, I'll put a few on there. There's a whole load more in scripture. But just take them up. Maybe, maybe just read through some and commit them to memory. So that when you hit a crisis, you can go to that one and go, Ah, oh, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You can just remember it. And it can be a point of, of remembrance for you. Crisis leading to resilience, leading to God's promises. We're going to journey over this over the next number of weeks and there's a whole number of different stories that we're going to unpack next week. I'm going to look at the story of Abraham and a whole number of others over the next number of weeks. But I'm excited for the journey that God's going to take us on as we grow a resilient faith at the start of this year. If there's anything from the teaching that challenged you, please know that we're praying for you and would love to support you. If you need any help or support, please email pastoral at thekings.church. 
Also, if you have questions about faith, starting on the 15th of January, we are running Alpha, which is an amazing course helping you learn who the person of Jesus is. You can find out all the details for that on our website. God bless you. See you soon.